and welcome to episode four of the Political Science Report, where each week I break down and go into depth on some of the latest and greatest political science literature. I'm your host, John Murphy, and today we'll be continuing our series of the six most impactful articles from the 2022 May APSR. Last week, we looked at the role of physical surveillance in increasing protest but decreasing sabotage in communist Poland. Um, This week, there are, it's in a similar part of the world and also is looking at the role of the Catholic Church in um, voting in Germany. Whereas the last article also talked about the Catholic Church as a way to get at um, that variable of physical surveillance. But other than that, Um, Somewhat of a different article, but still a cousin of the last one that we looked at. Um, So the title of this one is The Long-Term Effects of Oppression, Prussia, Political Catholicism, and the Alternative for Deutschland. So at the end of last episode, I was kind of stumbling through that title there. I think I read Alternative for Deutschland as just kind of a noun, not a proper noun. And so what the alternative for Deutschland is, and we'll talk about it a little bit later, Um, but it's a rising political party in Germany that is a radical right party and actually has stood out as surprising and shocking, and it's been prominent in the discussion that it's generated of a radical right party gaining national prominence in vote shares in a country like Germany that um, even has a history of radical parties. And so it's kind of caught a lot of people by surprise that this would be happening. And so that's just a tiny bit of background on what the alternative for Deutschland is, which will be abbreviated AFD in the rest of this talk, unless I feel stylistically I want a little break from that, and I'll just pronounce all of it. So this article is written by Lukas or Lucas Haffert at the University of Zurich in Switzerland. Haffert is a postdoctoral scholar at the University of Zurich in Switzerland. His interests are political economy, fiscal policy, historical institutionalism, and comparative politics. He also serves as the chair for Swiss politics and political economy in that department at the university. He's done some additional research, too, as a fellow at Georgetown as well as Harvard. He's written three books, and most of his recent articles, from what I could tell besides this one, deal mostly actually with European fiscal policy and even fiscal history, the role that some politicians have played, the role of the Great Depression in Europe, and a lot of European fiscal policy. That's not my field of study, but if it is, then Lucas Haffert might be be your guy to check out. So let's start with the basic argument of this paper, and it is that government oppression of Catholics in Prussia created a milieu in which Catholics in this oppressed area formed a tight-knit community that was able to mobilize and strongly mobilize and voted against anti or voted against authoritarian parties. If this were the case, you would expect that Catholic areas of Prussia, and we'll go more into the history of Germany, that's something I need a lot of refreshing on. I'm not the most familiar with history of Germany, especially pre-1940s or so, and so we'll get into what Prussia is, um, how the Catholics play into this, why we're looking at the Catholic Church, Um, but just in general, the argument is that Catholic oppression in the former state of Prussia still has impacts on the electoral vote shares of authoritarian parties in Germany, and so if you look preliminarily at it, you can just look at a map 
with high percentage of Catholic areas, compare that to vote shares by municipality of AFD, or just AFD vote shares, and you can see there is definitely a strong negative correlation between Catholic population and this authoritarian party's vote share. That's kind of preliminary, as we've stated before, that's what would be called kind of a naive estimate. The numbers do line up, but there could be tons and tons of reasons for why that may be the case. So, um, again, that's preliminary, but we still have 18 pages or so of research that we're going to get into and all the methods. This is a very um, rigorous article, particularly in its robustness checks, and we'll talk about that towards the very end of it. So just saying that if you are interested in robustness, robustness checks, particularly on historical research that uses archival data, um, and you're trying to capture dynamics of an entire country at a time period of 50, 100 years ago, um, this is a great paper in some of its methods to check out some of that. So that's the basic argument. Um, let's get into some of the introduction to the method. So he uses three specific methods in order to systematically examine the question that we're dealing with, which again, question is, does historical oppression have current political consequences, even when the historical oppression was more than 100 years ago? Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about the um, intellectual background, the geography within the political science literature that this falls in but he front loads it with some of the introductory methods so i thought i would do the same so he uses three specific methods to systematically examine this question to support his research he uses a german newspaper that captures all of the oppression events the state sanctioned oppression of catholics maybe it was a massacre maybe it was um a individual attack maybe it was a lockdown of something maybe it was a shutdown of a parish um, there's a newspaper that documented that for a two-week period. And so we'll get into more why that's helpful. Oh, it's only, or it's, it's a couple weeks. It's more than just a couple-week period. Um, we'll get into why that's relevant, but that's the first thing he uses is that newspaper. Um, and then just using that again simply, he finds that vote share for AFD does go down in Catholic places where there was stronger oppression because you can plot those oppression events on a map and then just compare that to... Um, AFD vote share. Second, he uses a discontinuity design between the former Prussia-Bavarian border to do something like the border discontinuity design that we talked about with Vavrik et al.'s paper a couple of weeks ago about researching television ads. We're not going to going to go into big deal, big detail on the discontinuity design in this paper, but it is used in that robustness check section. Third, he uses individual level survey data, and again finds respondents to say that increased oppression did come with increased negative attitudes against AFD, against authoritarian parties. And so preliminarily, those are the results just in the beginning. I think it's really important that, you know, we're not writing a fiction novel where the results are at the very end and it's not meant to keep you on the edge of your seat that you get to the results at the end and wow, surprising, wow, shocking. I the results, it's helpful to have at the beginning so that you can either just skim it if you need a really quick summary of it, but also so that you can keep in mind, oh, these these are the findings. Do the methods seem to match up with that? Does the background seem to make sense? Um, and so having that in your mind, what the final result is as you go through, you're able to a little bit more 
and be a little bit more engaged in the analysis of how how rigorous is this research given the results that it finds and so um, it's just an, always an interesting thing about the results coming first and so I think that that's helpful to keep in mind is that once you have that fixed in your brain of what the results are you can more rigorously go through the paper and engage a little bit better saying do these methods fit the finding or I kind of disagree I don't I don't think that number represents what you're saying it does in the results so um, the location of this paper in terms of, and you know I like that metaphor within an academic subfield, is where is this located within that subfield? Who are its neighbors? Who are its cousins? Um, what's nearby? So this paper comes from a tradition of recent research that studies political attitudinal transmission. That's a great term, political attitudinal transmission about how events or political developments in the past still affect current political events and current political developments. Um, it has been thoroughly established that political events of the past can have legacies of centuries-long legacies in current political affairs. In other words, the consequences of a political event in a particular geography could be seen more than a century later. Um, this brings to mind the Hillsborough disaster in England, where at a soccer match in Liverpool, there was a huge stampede. Things were not handled well by the police in terms of monitoring people. And it was um, quite a tragedy. 98 people ended up dying because of this, whether they were um, stomped in the stampede or crushed against something. But 98 people died in this disaster. And The Sun, which was a prominent newspaper in England, covered the event really horribly. It slandered Liverpool in the area, saying that people were picking the pockets of people who had already died, and Liverpool people were peeing on the police. And so there's actually a really thoroughly organized boycott of the Sun in Liverpool because of all of the slander against Liverpool that still continues to this day. And this happened in, oh, I don't have the year here, I think it's some 89 or something like that. Um, and so if you look now, the Sun readership in Liverpool is still lower than the surrounding areas. There's one paper I read in a class that connected the um, media consumption. It connected media consumption to voting of particular parties. And the Sun, I think, it argued had kind of a slant for or against Brexit. I don't remember what it was. Um, but because Liverpool wasn't reading the Sun, you could see that it had lower support for or against Brexit. I don't know which direction it was. Um, but anyways, that, that event, that political event from 1989 still has political and social implications today because there was organizing around this boycott. And so that's just one example that I can even think of in my knowledge of this area. Um, and the, the Catholic one that we're talking about is a little bit more, um, involves more socialization. You know, I'm not sure people in Liverpool are brought up and one of the first things they learn is this disaster and one of their primary cardinal virtues is to not read the sun. I think it's a little bit different. Um, but it is an example of that kind of the history of an event causing pol political differences later. I'm sure you can think of a hundred examples on your own. It's not very hard. But what is unique, even though it's been established that this does occur, what is unique is that mechanisms have not been thoroughly researched in this area. So in other words, yes, there are a lot of effects of past events to current events, but there's not a lot of agreement or even research on what is the mechanism by which these attitudes are transmitted. 
So within this line of research, this author is trying to propose a mechanism, even if he finds, yeah, there is a correlation between historical oppression and current political vote shares of AS AFD. Um, but he's really interested in what is the mechanism by which this happens. Um, the two pathways that have been put forth previously, um, or I'll get to that in a minute. So the pathways that have been vaguely outlined in this line of research are three, the micro level, meso level, and macro level. Micro level is like family, political socialization. Meso level is like local institutions, so maybe churches, baseball, football, little leagues, um, Boy Scout, Girl Scout, troops, and then macro level, which is a state level political socialization. For transmitting, these are three different potential pathways that political attitudes are transmitted. Author points out that the family is important in producing vertical socialization. I like that distinction of vertically, you will probably have the same political views as your parents and as their parents and their parents. Um, there's obviously difference, but that's a good vertical one. But the parents aren't going to be able to explain horizontal change. So maybe my friend, my parents aren't going to be able to explain my friend's political socialization. Maybe his family will. Um, and then macro level is state-wide. And so this could be seen when there's a lot of uniform belief. So maybe the broad general political assumptions of Americans could be seen as state or macro level political socialization, transmission of political attitudes. But where there's differences, it shows that there's a gap, that the state isn't able to explain that. And so this paper focuses specifically on meso-level differences, particularly local institutions. Um, and the institutions in this case are particularly churches, Catholic churches. Um, and an important thing, too, about these different political socialization pathways, micro, meso, and macro, is that none of them are the right answer. Um, that's something that could easily be a trip up, but you're saying, oh, the macro level explains it, or the micro level is that in, in certain cases, at certain times, for certain things, one of these may be more influential than others. And so it's never just going to be a single one. Macro answers it for every single case, every single time. That's just not how this research is done. And so in this particular area of political attitudinal transmission, the author wants to make a case that meso level, that local institutional level, is the best case for and has the most, has the strongest um, mechanism for transmitting strong political beliefs in this particular area. So, as I said, this article focuses on meso level socialization that and the church in particular, the Catholic Church. Um, the Catholic Church has been shown in many contexts to create strong social ties and create consistent socialization practices through associational events, through services, through membership, community events, education, um, and teaching of how to live your life. So the author also focuses on the role of unions, but not as much in this paper as you'll see. And so what the author focuses a lot on is the... He calls it the Catholic milieu, and so that's kind of a, would be considered almost a proper noun, I guess, that it's a specific milieu that developed in oppressed Catholic areas where there was state oppression. So 
Now that we've talked about kind of the history of this line of research that we have established connection between past and present, but we don't have the mechanisms and this author is trying to promote um, a potential or provide a potential mechanism for socialization. Let's talk about the specific context within Germany. And this is where I needed some refreshing. So thank you for including this in the paper. So this one, this paper is specifically focused in West Germany and that this is a good place to study regional political differences based on oppression because it does not have a uniform history. There have been four dominant regimes in Western Germany over the last 150 years. And if so, the macro level, if that were a driver, then we'd have four different macro, macro level regimes driving changes. And so we would expect to see, maybe with lagging effects, we would expect to see four uniform political responses in those four different regimes but we don't see that at all that there are consistent geographical unique voting patterns so the macro level is not going to answer the question here as why this part of germany with a high percentage of catholics doesn't vote for afd while this other part of germany does vote for afd in higher numbers so most researchers have looked at two potential reasons why and this is a big part of this paper is that we're looking at the rise of the radical right. Um, two potential reasons for the rise of the radical right in different countries, and particularly in West Germany, are the two theories are an economic and a cultural theory. So the economic theory states that modernization losers, and that's a term taken from Colin Tone and Stanning 2018. I want to give them credit. I like that term, that modernization losers are big supporters of the radical right, that those who have been left behind economically and feel left out and want a strong arm in politics um, will fight for that radically and tend to lean towards the radical right. The cultural argument theorizes that there is a sort of cultural backlash that develops a resentment towards foreigners, a want to fight back for what has been taken away from these people, um, possibly a hyper-nationalism. And so those are the the two main theories so far that there's an economic theory and then there's a cultural theory and i think even just to pause and see some relevant connections currently in the united states i there was a paper by vavrick and i want to say maybe tesler um, called hunting where the ducks are something like that um, and it found that two of the prominent drivers of trump voters in 2016 um, one of the reasons that he was able to win is that he picked up a lot of people, a lot of conservative voters in particular, who both had strong, really, really strong anti-immigration and anti-Muslim outlooks. That would be kind of the cultural theory. And then also wanted a higher, a higher amount of government handout. So kind of there's this notion that, oh, conservatives maybe are more libertarian, they want small government, they don't want big handouts, but that's less and less true that there are a lot of conservatives who more and more are wanting government handouts. And within that group of conservatives who wanted government handouts, those who wanted government handouts more strongly, uh, maybe felt more left behind, wanted some additional economic help, um, potentially could be modernization losers. Um, also had really high turnout rates for Trump. And so I thought that was an interesting connection, um, both economic and cultural theories we can even see in current American um, political development. And so I think that those theories aren't, 
wrong, and I don't think our, our author would say that they're wrong, but what his point is is that, okay, say we decide it is cultural. We decide that there's a cultural reason why these groups in Germany are voting for AFD and these groups are not. Do we just stop there? Or do we go more into the mechanism is how is this culture in particular transmitting anti-authoritarian or transmitting authoritarian beliefs to within organizations, within associations, um, to children um, that they raise in their families. And so that's what the argument, the author's argument is here. It's not that the economic or the cultural theory are wrong in different places and different times, but it's that they're not, he even uses the word vacuous at a point. They say, okay, so the, the reason that this group is because it's cultural. Okay, well, that doesn't tell me a lot. And so he's diving deeper into that cultural factor and saying within culture, these institutions, these integrative institutions that assimilate people, that teach values and bring people together are a really strong way that political views are um, assimilated and spread out and attitudinally transmitted within groups. So that's an important point that he's making here. Those aren't wrong, but the economic and cultural responses or theories are insufficient and should not be stopped at. So he's paving a way down the cultural side of the lane. So this research... Research has been done on AFD support as it has somewhat been a hot topic and cause for concerned discussion, as I mentioned earlier. They find that there are historical hotbeds of support who also voted strongly for another radical right party in 2013. I'm not as familiar with that one. Um, and they show that historical regional associations do increase support for these radical right parties as well as the AFD. But and again, to reiterate that argument, this is really important, is that we can't just say, oh, these certain geographies are hotbeds for radical right support. Is it the weather there? Is it the type of water that those people are getting? No, it, there's more than just saying this particular area has a particular culture. It's like if, you know, a family were to, you were to say, oh, this lineage of people this lineage of family has a lot of athletes that go to the nfl you know you were to do a study of people who go to the nfl you say oh there's a there's a cultural aspect to it that certain families send a lot of people like the mannings archie manning eli manning peyton manning and i think another archie manning coming into the league oh oh it's just that family's culture they're a football family uh <laughs> okay cool but i want to know is it because archie brought Eli and Peyton out early, that he um, showed it to them early? Is it that because he was part of it, they got to experience a lifestyle? And so anyways, that's kind of a random, it's not random, but it's a relevant sports example that I think kind of gets a little bit more in detail at we don't want to end it. Oh, it's just a cultural factor. It's what is the driver of culture? What is the mechanism by which this culture of radical rightism is perpetuating itself? Now to turn to the role of Catholicism in all of this. A key factor in the study is Catholicism, as mentioned at the outset. It's been associated with slightly lower support for AFD overall. I'm a bit confused because at other parts, as mentioned, there's inconclusive results, but we'll touch on that later. Um, but the author makes an important point that there's nothing a priori or theoretically about Catholicism that would make it predisposed to support or oppose AFD. It's not like because we 
are looking at the Catholicism, we would naturally expect higher rates for this authoritarian party, or lower rates. He talks about, on the one hand, the Catholic respect for hierarchy, authority, tradition, strictness might lend itself to authoritarian support. But on the other hand, the Catholic development of an alternative political consciousness, aka being a citizen of heaven before being a citizen of a given country, of wanting to take care of the poor and social concern, might make Catholics more predisposed to support um, democratic or freedom parties or parties that at the very least are not authoritarian and oppressive. So there's nothing a priori that predisposes people who follow the Catholic religion to choose for or against the AFD party, which, which is important because then we don't have to take into account that natural predisposition as a factor. It's just a certain type of identity that we're more able to monitor and that has a bit of a brutal history in this area of the world. Um, that we can keep an eye on. So it's just an important note within this article. Now to get to the history of Germany, a little bit we touched on it, but to go into more detail. For the last 200 years, the author is looking at, um, so after the Reformation, that was in 1517, not 200 years ago, um, but there was a lot of instability in Germany. The Reformation, remember, was when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door in the Wittenberg Chapel. So from there, there were two major Catholic regions in the south and in the north. And a bit later, the northern area, or the, I think I said Catholic, but the two major Catholic regions were in the north and the south. And a bit later, the northern area secularized and Protestantized, and the southern area stayed mostly Catholic. So what's important is that they both started out Catholic, north and south, but the North became Protestant and secular. I'm not exactly sure how those went together perfectly, um, but that's what the author's saying. So the difference is that in the South, Catholics still enjoyed political power. They were still a large percentage of the population. They were enshrined in government. But in the North, they became now a religious, a social minority and endured a lot of political oppression. There was a lot of religious tension. Um, there was a period called the Troubles. Um, I know there was a period called the Troubles in Ireland as well, so maybe that's a term that's repeated throughout countries. Because um, I just always knew the Troubles were in Ireland. I didn't know other places had something called the Troubles, but I guess they did. And the development of a Catholic consciousness and mobilization developed in the North, whereas it didn't need to develop in the South because they were enjoying... Um, I don't think it would be majority status, but at least comfortable status. And so they didn't need to mobilize. They didn't recognize themselves as much as Catholics because the government was Catholic. Um, but in the North, there developed this need for mobilization because there was severe repression of Catholics. There were monasteries that were shut down. There were seminaries that were shut down. Um, there was a law that when a Catholic woman married a Protestant male... The child had to grow up within the Protestant faith. That's why I'm kind of confused about. It says it was secularized, but then that also is religious, so it's Protestantized. Um, but again, that's not as important. The main point here is that in this period where northern Russia, sorry, northern Germany became Prussia, there was severe Catholic repression. But in the south, that never took place. So that's the difference that we have here. We have Catholic populations in both. We have tension and repression in the north and general comfort um, and living in the south. So this is what the 
author's argument is, and I'll quote, My argument is that the formation of the Catholic milieu provides the mechanism by which historical experiences of political oppression were transmitted to later generations. Individual Catholics died, but the organizations they had created lived on. Indeed, milieus, not just the Catholic milieu, but also the social democratic milieu, had a crucial influence on the development of the German party system. End quote. So this is the mechanism. The socialization and persistence of the Catholic milieu developed in the context of state oppression that still affects political results or electoral results in Germany today, specifically against the AFD. So how is this done? Why? Why would this mechanism happen? Why would Catholic mobilization be a mechanism by which there is lower AFD support today? So first, the, the milieu developed a strong association with political parties, um, such as the Center Party, which between 1871 and 1933 got, and this is pretty wild, 50 to 80% of the Catholic vote. And after World War II, so after that period that was discussed before, the Christian Democratic Party commands a really strong share of Catholic votes as well. And so argument there is that in that period of oppression and authoritarianism, the Catholics formed a milieu that was consciously religious and anti-authoritarian, and you can see that in really high vote shares of religious um, or center parties. Second, the associational groups that the Catholic milieu developed foster the types of social capital that dissuade people from voting for far-right parties. Some popular research on this in an American context, you can look at Putnam, 1993. He's a famous researcher on social capital and its decline in the United States. Um, decline implying that there was a high level of it compared to even other countries. Um, and he argues that it is a reason that democracy is able to be sustained, that when you have connections with people, when you have clubs, when you have associations, um, that there's greater social capital, meaning that you trust people, that people trust you, that you have meaningful concern for and awareness of your neighbor, which is really good for a democratic ethos. Something I'd be curious here, because the argue is saying that these associational groups that came out of the Catholic milieu strengthen social capital. If I'm not mistaken, I. I think some of the, soci the associational ties and traditions in the U.S. come specifically from a lot of German immigrants that influenced American culture um, and would have different groups and people that would spend time together and, yeah, associational groups and stuff like that. And I think of a lot of the immigrants who shaped that part of America. I think the Germans were a strong leader in that, and so I'd be curious if maybe Germany on average, and I'm, maybe I'm reaching here, but Germany on average would have higher social capital naturally. And so how would you distinguish between um, this milieu if this was, if milieus were normal all across the country, and this one just happened to be a Catholic milieu. So this one didn't have more social capital than other areas because Germany was an area with a lot of associational ties, but it just had a different type of milieu that that developed against authoritarianism, which I don't think would dissuade from the argument, but I think it's more of a to what degree was, is the development of social capital unique? That it would be more the anti-authoritarian milieu, not necessarily something inherent to social capital at this point in the essay. But finally, 
because there, uh, because of these Catholic milieu clubs were formed in a period of oppression from an authoritarian government, op opposition to authoritarianism is woven into these groups' DNA. They were formed for that reason. They came about in that reason. And so throughout the 19th, 20th, and even early 21st century, the roots of these organizations um, still applied. And so maybe there was slightly less oppression later than when it was built, but the milieu continued. And so people who joined the milieu were aware of the oppression events, and it was still a big driver of the, the social capital within these groups. So those are the three things. Just to super quickly recap um, that the oppression forced the Catholics at this time to be anti-authoritarian, that the associational, associational groups developed social capital, which is an inherently anti-authoritarian um, good or valuable item, I guess. It's not an item, kind of intangible, but you know what I'm saying. And then finally, um, because these things were formed during the oppression times, they were formed and continue to build a consciousness of anti-oppression, anti-authoritarianism. So now we turn to the data and the empirical strategy. So we've covered the historical background, we've covered what strand of literature this falls within, we've covered what unique answer and what unique lane this is trying to pave, namely a mechanism for political attitudinal socialization at the regional level. So there are two general research, two general movements in this research. Number one is looking at 2017 election results, AFD election results, and what is really neat is that there are more than 8,000 municipalities in West Germany. So you can look at these results in really fine-grained fashion. That You can look at, imagine just West Germany alone divided into 8,000 municipalities. You could see the vote share for the AFD in every single one of those, which is really cool. Um, yes, yeah, so second our author looks at the level of organization and political... Catholic mobilization in each area relative to current vote share. So specifically looking at strength in the early 20th and early 21st century. And in this research, the dependent variable is AFD vote share, something to keep in mind. So quick note on why West Germany, why not East Germany? So this analysis is restricted to West Germany because there have been fewer historical Catholics in East Germany, so it wouldn't be as strong of an explanatory factor. And the mix of communist and fascist rule have sort of scattered a lot of political and religious allegiances in East Germany, and so there would be less direct of a line or a correlation. And so it doesn't provide as fertile a research ground for this very particular question um, that the researcher is finding. So now, how is historical oppression measured? And this is always such a fun part of research, is how is your, how is your variable measured? And the last one, we measured um, the number of police officers, secret police officers in a given region. We also measured sabotage by looking at the amount of work per capita within the logs of the different Polish municipalities. Um, so how do, we, how do we measure historical oppression? So the way that they do this, or the way that he does this here, is that as I went back to earlier, we... He's looking at a newspaper that posted the last couple weeks. It was somewhere between 1875 and 1876. So I don't know if it's a short time right at the overlap of the years or it's half of the years. It just says that covered the previous few weeks oppression, state-sponsored oppression events. And so this is our independent variable here of about 2,000 or 1,200 
oppression events. 512 had to do with Catholic oppression. And of the 512, about 350 state the area that the event occur. So remember, we're looking at a period in time where northern Germany is called Prussia. And there was a lot of state repression of the Catholics. Seminaries were shut down. Um, there was a lot of protests as well. And the, the largest movement, the most violent movement in this is called um, Kulterkampf. And it was a strong anti-Catholic anti campaign in Russia. And so within this period of time, we're looking at the state-sponsored oppression events. And you may say, oh, this was only one year of events. How could you say that that's conclusive? And author notes that. Author says that this is not complete, obviously. But we think it's a good enough sample size that we can extrapolate it to the other weeks in the year and get a general feel for were events happening, were oppression events of Catholics happening in what areas, if you plot them onto a map. So if you do look at a map, if you do plot them on a map, just to give a little bit of credibility, almost all of the events happen in northern Germany, where there was, and so sorry, I guess the newspaper wasn't just of Prussia, it was all of West Germany, but if you look at the oppression events, they're most specifically in the north, where there was a history of and where Prussia was in charge of state. In charge of state oppression is a weird way to put it, but was repressing Catholics there. So that does give some credibility to it. Then the second measurement is just a dummy indicator of whether or not the municipality was located in Prussia or not. So that one, again, may seem, oh, that's not fine-grained enough, that you're not looking at municipalities specifically and the Catholic share of it or the history of it or the amount of repression in it but you're just taking prussia as a whole but again the author says that we have a short window for fine-grained events to measure um historical oppression really specifically for a really short amount of time but then we also have a longer period of time a little more vague but a longer comprehensive period of time by just coding was this area in a place where Catholics were oppressed. So those are the two ways that are measuring historical oppression. To note, um, they return very similar results, the author says, um, and it goes on to show, so there is some credibility there. The analysis here, author first looks at Catholic population and AFD vote share. There's no positive or negative correlation. In other words, the more Catholics don't necessarily vote any more or less for AFD if you just take Catholic population. But when it's interacted with a the basic term, so the dummy variable of um, Prussia or not Prussia, Catholicism has a strong effect on vote share. So in other words, to think about this is that if you just look at Catholics all across Germany, there's no correlation to this authoritarian party voting. But if you look at Catholics specifically in this area where there was generally more historical oppression, there is a uh, statistically significant negative correlation on AFD vote share. And interestingly, the effect of Catholicism on vote share in former Prussia for AFD sharply diverges around the 40% mark of Catholic population. So what does this mean? This means that regions with less than 40% Catholics in Prussia have kind of a similar voting pattern 
to places in Prussia that, or sorry, well, let me make sure I get these right. Diverges around 40%. Okay, so places with less than 40% in and outside of Prussia don't have huge different voting patterns of the AFD. But if you look at places that have greater than 40% Catholic population, then you really see the difference that Catholicism makes. So populations or municipalities that have a heavy Catholic population in Prussia have a large population of those who are, who are oppressed and part of this anti-authoritarian milieu in this part of West Germany. That's where you start to see the really big effects of political Catholicism on vote share for AFD. Hopefully that makes sense. So in the fifth and or the fourth and fifth models, the author basically just switches out the Prussia dummy for the more fine-grained degree of oppression that charts the events on the different areas of Germany at the time for even just the short window that we get. And the model very similarly shows that historical oppression rates are negatively correlated with AFD vote shares. But areas of weaker oppression do not show any correlation, negative or positive. So the robustness, the robustness checks are discussed. One is that perhaps the political future of these regions was shaped prior to 1815. Maybe it wasn't the Prussian oppression of Catholics. It was something that occurred before that shaped the regional differences here. And so the author goes into a deep dive of the history of Germany. It looks at that's where the regression discontinuity is about the Bavarian border. I'm not going to go dive too deep into this other than to say it's a good consideration. And again, if you're interested in robustness checks, specifically of historical events, they use archival data. Um, this, this is one of the best ones that I've seen. Maybe the best one I've seen. Again, this isn't my area of study, but he seems to go through it quite thoroughly. So those are results. To talk about the mechanism now, which again is the unique part of this paper that the author is trying to pioneer, we return to an empirical discussion of the mechanism so remember that this is again what the author is really interested in and what is most novel of this article. So what he does is regress his measure of mobilization on the Kulturkampf, the Prussian oppression of Catholics. Um, in other words, he's showing that historical oppression in a particular area isn't just correlated with vote share, it's correlated with 20 and 21st century mobilization. So the measure of the mobilization here, um, one of them that is used, one of them is a um, an archival data source. I think I'm blanking on that. It's an archival data source that documented Catholic mobilization and enrollment in programs that were anti-authoritarian. And then the 21st century measure of mobilization is a Catholic festival. I don't have the name in front of me here, but it's a Catholic festival that a lot of... It, it's the largest Catholic gathering in Germany. What the author finds is that dioceses who, who are overrepresented at this Catholic festival, maybe this diocese makes up 3% of... Um, Catholic diocese in Germany overall, but it makes up 10% of attendance that those groups have lower vote shares, some of the lowest vote shares of AFD. So it gives credence to the argument that historical oppression has driven current mobilization and vote shares, 
And the author does find strong evidence that oppression is correlated not just with vote shares, but oppression is strongly correlated with historical and current mobilization. And mobilization as an inclusive term of the Catholic milieu's development, associational groups, local institutions like churches, um, and like the groups that I mentioned, are a strong mechanism for affecting vote shares. To conclude here with the discussion, author concludes by calling this paper a plea to consider more than just modernizational losers and cultural backlash narratives that have dominated the research on the rise of the radical right and its success in many countries in recent history. I think this is an important paper for that consideration as we see um, radical rightism increasing in a number of different countries. And it's quite interesting, there was, one of my professors showed me a study done that um, democracy, countries kind of go through cycles where maybe they end up with democracy, but democracy doesn't last super long often. And, and part of it is that people begin to feel unhappy with the slowness of democracy um, and eventually want to turn to an authoritarian form of government to get what they want done because they're sick and tired of seeing people debate and and argue and so the united states that's a really relevant question what stage in democracy are we are people sick and tired of seeing slow government not respond in time to certain issues and just want someone to get in there and do something and get it done which may be effective in the very very short run but authoritarianism is i can't name a good history of it at all and so it is something that has not only research interest but really substantive importance especially in the study of democracy so this author again is a plea he says to study more than just the economic and cultural reasons but to dive more into depth to get more fine-grained analysis of what is driving these trends in increased radical rightism he highlights that another part of the radical right conversation, um, this paper demonstrates that it's not only who votes for, but also who votes against. So what predisposes a group not to vote for the radical right, but to vote against the radical right. And so that's an important contribution here too. So my concluding thoughts, um, I wonder if there's any element of migration in, in the study here, if, if a certain type of person was more or less likely to migrate during this time of oppression. Maybe the the strongest Catholics left at the time when they were getting oppressed, or maybe the strongest stayed, and so maybe you're not getting identical groups in the comparison um, naturally because of the migration that occurs during state repression. And so that would probably be more of a, a substantive question of even qualitative, what did it look like, who left, who stayed. Um, I just think of right now, if something were to happen in California, the demographics of California in terms of politics just look different now than, you know, three, four years ago is that people are leaving California. And so if you were to study it over time, it's not a uniform state. And so I would be curious if West Germany is a uniform country at this time of those who are staying and those who are who are leaving and if that would create any sort of selection bias on the whole. Another question, is this a question, I guess this isn't super important for the results, but qualitatively I'd be interested, is this a question of who historically oppressed groups like the Catholics in this paper are for or who they against? Are 
are the Catholics groups forming primarily an anti-authoritarian political consciousness or are they forming their own unique political consciousness that results in not voting for authoritarian parties and so it'd be interesting to dive into that a little bit more is this for is the catholic milieu a formation for or against primarily a political ideology and finally i'd be interested in how this methodology can be applied in the u.s i think it's a really interesting question i can think of all sorts of historical events and differences and border changes that might um, you might be able to exploit to to use a similar methodology on political formation. And again, I'm going to try to use that term as much as I can. Um, political attitudinal transmission and the way that you can study that. And so that's something maybe I'll be thinking about as I drive in my car next time. I have some time to think. So a well done article overall that goes into some of the most thorough robustness. robustness I can't say that normally. Robustness checks I have seen in a paper. So if you are interested in checking out the robustness checks and are interested in how to do it with historical archival research like this, I highly recommend looking at that second third, the fourth fifth or so of this paper. And next week, we'll continue our series and look at a paper entitled Authoritarian Rallying as Reputational Cascade, Evidence from P Putin's Popularity Surge After Crimea. So again... This was probably published in, or finished in 2021, published May 2022, so we don't know at this time all that we know now about Russia, but I'm guessing there will be some sort of relevance, and again, we're diving into authoritarian rallying, authoritarian governments in the European, Asian part of the world, Eastern European, um, so I'm excited for that, excited to learn more, see what methods they use in that line of research. And again, I have a Twitter. You can find it at the Political Science Report or at PoliSci Report, where I, it's a good means of seeing professors following brilliant people who are doing meaningful research, um, who might not be the most popular intellectuals, not in the top 10, you know, that have those bestsellers and stuff, but they are just, just brilliant researchers putting in their work, trying to save democracy. And so I'm excited to have a platform in which people can locate those individuals and for any updates on the podcast but once again thank you so much for listening and we will see you next week take care until then